Hi, and welcome back to the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. Uh, today is episode 117, and today I have Ricardo Costa with me. Hey, Ricardo, how are you doing? G'day, how are you doing? All good? Good. Well, okay, I think you've, you, you instantly clarified where you're probably from. <laughs> uh, so get, get, maybe you can give us uh, some background, Ricardo, um, as, to, uh, as to who you are and what you're up to yep. and what you're sort of research and practice interests are and, and then absolutely we'll so i'm a, a, a sports dietetic practitioner i'm a, a chief investigator researcher and a lecturer at monash university here in melbourne in australia uh and uh, our team is pretty much you know one of the world leaders in exercise gastroenterology research from uh, mechanisms to exacerbatory factors and prevention and management strategy that's brilliant and uh, obviously, you're you're down there uh, in Australia. I say down there. You know how we are in England. We always <laughs> you guys as, as being down there. And I have actually spoken to quite a few um, practitioners and researchers from Australia. In fact, uh, tomorrow I've, I, I have another interview with uh, another power duo team, um, which is Louise Burke and John Hawley, who I know you know. Um, awesome. Yep. Yep. And it's interesting uh, that this sort of the the, the well. Australia is, is one of those places which I think we can confidently say is a powerhouse for sport and exercise nutrition research. We like to feel that we you know, are pretty good at that as well over here in the UK. But uh, it's interesting how um, you know, of all the, the global research that there is, there is a fair amount coming out. Um, yeah. Um, in particular, uh, I find... There are a number of institutions such as Monash, which you um, work at, are pumping out awesome research, not just in, uh, in sports nutrition, of course, but in nutrition and, and dietetics. And that's how I came across you and your work in particular. Um, I've been aware of, of some of your work for some time, but it was when I developed my own interest for my own practice in um, sort of gut health and, and performance and FODMAPs and so on that led me down the path of learning um, a lot more from you and your team. And actually, I did your your uh, food is medicine course that you guys did oh, cool. um, in yep, exercise, yep. Um, you know, gut food. Med- I've forgotten that you can correct us, actually. Yep. This is an <laughs> opportunity for you, for, for you to plug your course. What, what was the course that I did, Ricardo? Uh, oh, it's a series. It's... Um... Yeah, f- food, food, using food as medicine, like that's a series at Monash Uni, but ours is called Exercise in the Gut. Yeah, and it, it, I, I'm not just saying it, it really was a, a, a fantastic course. Um, no, thank you, thank what, you. What, I'm, what I enjoy about that sort of thing is, is, is a bit like these podcasts, <laughs> it's, it's, not just, it's not just that you're learning from the people that are doing the research, but these people are also practitioners. So there's that science to practice um, pathway, which is what I myself am attempting to do with my my work. So anyway, I, I'll, I'll make yes. sure I put a link um, to this podcast to, to that course because it's one of those sort of must-do courses I think for anyone that works cool. with athletes. No, um, thank you. And also, I just add on to that: it's you got practitioners that are, are discussing the different case studies, so it's not just me telling the participants, you know. Yeah. what to do or guiding them it's actually yourselves interacting with each other and coming up with the solutions as well 
Yeah, I, actually, it was very interesting, the, 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 the diversity, but the impressive diversity of practitioners from around the world that engaged in that. So, um, so anyway, you can, um, I'll give you my bank transfer details for the plug later, <laughs> Ricardo. <laughs> so, so the reason why I, I'm interested in, in this uh, or got interested in that was, as I said, from my own practice and there are a variety of athletes or teams that I've worked with over the years where, you know, issues with, with gut health or in particular the, 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 the sort of the collision between diet, food and impact um, ha has occurred where I've realized, you know, the, the, the sort of the huge opportunities that presents itself to the performance nutritionist, which is over and above, you know, the traditional, right, let's get energy balance, right? Let's talk about fueling. You know, we're now looking at improving the way athletes interact with their, their food and their, their, their interventions and also minimize the, you know, the issues that invariably do come up. And one type of event that I have been working with for some time now um, with a number of, uh, I'm very lucky to work with a number of elite ultra endurance athletes. I wouldn't classify myself as an ultra endurance athlete, although I've tried, attempted to train for Marathon de Sable, uh, which sadly awesome. I, I was unable yep. to get into. Although next year, next year I'm going to do it. I keep saying this, but uh, yep. um, <laughs> it's, it is so, amazing uh, yes. how much training yes. is required for those types of events. And as a practitioner, actually, it's really helped me appreciate you know all the things that have to be dealt with and and you you wrote um or led the uh the nutrition for ultramarathon running paper in the recent ijsnem series of 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 papers that came out um and uh, that paper i'll definitely be linking to but i i that's really what i wanted to get into today ricardo because i think uh -huh. I think this is an issue that is of relevance to every kind of athlete, but is particularly well, um, you know, you mentioned case study there. The ultimate case study, I think, is for this particular area of extreme endurance training. Um, yes. and, and it's not just ultra marathon, which I'll, I'll have you tell us all about this in a minute. But, I, but I've also done a lot of work with um, elite military units, special forces, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. where we have been looking at improving, you know, the, 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 the operator's ability to um, do what they need to do as a human weapon, so to speak, out in the field uh, under fairly extreme ultra endurance type scenarios, you know, um, a little bit more extreme because obviously people are shooting at them potentially. and so yeah. on. But, but the reason why I'm mentioning that is that, Performance nutrition, which is a word I prefer over sports nutrition, because it, you know it's not just sports or athletes. There are there are other kinds of events where this stuff has its um, has its use and its and its yes. value, which which makes uh -huh. makes life really exciting for us nowadays as as performance nutritionists. So anyway, that's sort of me, you know, getting into the topic and why I want to talk about this, and I think it's hugely interesting, but. How is it you even got into this area of research first? What, what led you down this path? Well, it's actually a similar background to what you've just mentioned there. My PhD was funded by the British Ministry of Defence, mm. um, and it was exercise immunology. 
And um, one of the aspects was looking at the energy expenditure and the overall stress response of the military recruits during their training, which, yeah, it's enormous. And they've got you know, exposure to environmental conditions. They've got sleep deprivation. They've got um, energy restriction. And they've got the exercise all together. And my, my focus was more on how did that impact on the immune system. But then um, when I, I moved from Banger out with Prof Neil Walsh on, into Coventry, where my first lecturing position, um, we started a clinic there. And the main, um, the main athletes that were coming to the clinic were ultra-endurance athletes doing multi-stages that were training for you know, these exotic events like the Marathon Sables or the Transalpine um, or the uh, Atacama Crossing, etc. But when, as, as you mentioned, evidence-based practice, that's what we tried to do. We went into the evidence to look at, you know, what, what are the nutrition requirements for ultra-endurance events, especially multi-stage. And there was nothing there. This was, this was back in 2009, 2010. There was just nothing there. So we had nothing to base it on. So what we had to do is just come up with the, an assessment pathway to try and understand what, what was the nutritional was energy nutritional expenditure of these athletes to then you know try and program something for these events um and that that then led us to go into the exploratory research in spain in the um al andalusia uh, ultra trail which is a 230 kilometer uh five uh, six sorry six stage um multi-stage ultra marathon event and that's where we found um that uh, the gastrointestinal issues all came out so um, even though we're going, we went in there looking at nutritional status and hydration status, that was our focus. One of the side assessments was, um, you know, perception of effort and fatigue state and gastrointestinal symptoms and dermatological injuries and other injuries. We looked at that sort of a whole cascade of signs and symptoms. And it was the symptoms that came out massively. It's nearly everyone had a symptom along that whole event. Mm. Um, um, and that sort of led us, okay, this is a major issue. So let's look at the literature. What are people doing about it? Well, nobody's doing anything about it. They're all just okay. reporting. Yes. <laughs> marathon, you have this amount of symptoms and cycling, you have this amount of symptoms and yeah, A, B and C. It's like, great. But what do we do? And no one was doing anything for prevention and management. So we said, oh, well, stuff is then we'll go and do it. And that's what we did. We started off looking at prevention management to help our athletes, not necessarily to get the research out there, to help our athletes because no one else was doing it. Um, and that's sort of the journey that we took. Uh, yeah, no, it's fascinating. I, again, I, you know, as you, as you learn more about this stuff, you, you tend to realize, particularly for the more, you know, the more significant, you know, uh, uh, things that athletes have to do, you know, the, the profound uh, training uh, schedules, the volume of work, uh, that's required and in this case for example the the, the extremeness of the event itself yep. Yep. which 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 in it you know we, which we should remember if we think that the event is extreme the training my own personal experience was the yes. the training oh, yeah. was was the really extreme thing yeah. because <laughs> it was it's sort of hours every bloody day of training yeah. and like entire weekends and the impact isn't just physical it's you know, your, your family are like, going, yep. what do you look like? Exactly. You know, your wife's yeah. like knocking at you. So do you remember what the marriage thing was all about? <laughs> you know, there's, quite, <laughs> there's quite a lot of stuff there, you know. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you, you, you got a lot to look at. So the, the performance nutritionist, um, you know, because this is definitely an example where people should not be doing these things on their own. They should seek 
professional, you know, advice from people who know what they're talking about. You know, something yeah, that we'll, yeah. we'll discuss. <laughs> we'll discuss that a bit later in this podcast. Um, yep. But the sheer amount of stuff that needs to be considered for this now, uh, which is which is amazing. It, it, you know, it, it is a big deal. But it's also a big deal because this is something that isn't. You've already pointed this out, but this isn't this isn't necessarily an elite athlete. Although I think it's arguable that anyone that could even do an ultra is an elite athlete just by virtue mm. of what they're they're doing. Yeah, yeah. But there are huge numbers of people doing this, and I don't say that as an understatement. Yes. There, no, the, not at all. Um, yep. So, so why don't you give us? So, look, I'm, I'm going to throw this back at you, Ricardo. So, let's just do two things initially here, because I like to define things so that we're all on the same page. The listeners know exactly what it is we mean by certain terms we use. So, can you just yep. clarify what what we mean or what you mean by an ultra marathon, and mm-hmm. and just give some background as to what sort of stuff goes yep. on in these events. So uh, an ultra marathon by characteristics, and these are definitions coming from the Ultra Sports Science Foundation, mm. uh, sort of the sort of leading scientific foundation that um, helps and supports ultra marathon events. It's ultra marathon per se is anything over 42.2 kilometers. So anything over a marathon is considered an ultra. Generally, it can be 50 kilometers. That's sort of the lo- most commonest uh, lower distance ultra. And can go all the way up to 5,000 kilometers. For example, the you know, trans-European multi-stage ultramarathon that can last you know, one month, two months. So, and <laughs> exactly. Crazy. Um, well, people, are, people are tapping on their, the, on their uh, speakers going, surely that wasn't right. <laughs> no, that's, that's correct. Yep. 5,000 Ks. Are, um, also, there's two, there's two categories, single stage and multi-stage. So you can have, for example... Uh, a single stage 230 kilometer race. So example I can give here in Australia is the coast of Cozzi. So it starts at the coast and you run up to Mount Kosciuszko. Uh, and, and that is just in one stage. It, it normally takes, you know, two days, but people have to manage the time, have to manage the nutrition, have to manage their speed. Uh, this, the, the, the clock starts when you start the race and only finishes when you get to the top. And then you can have multi-stage, you know, five or six or seven day, 230 kilometers where you do you know, roughly 30 to 50 kilometers a day. Each day could be different, um, but it's normally, you know, small and sweet, uh, totaling a distance of 230 kilometers, example. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, I, you know, I think if that alone doesn't describe how crazy and nuts this is, um, yep. you know, but that is what makes it so exciting. I think the challenges that present themselves to to athletes um, are just getting more and more radical. Um, you know, yes. I I uh, uh, I think that once we start to unpack some of the physiological components of this, this is where it obviously becomes relevant to where performance nutritionists um, and related professionals, sports me- medicine doctors, and so on, can really play a role in in supporting. Um, these guys um, and girls. Um, so that said, then, do you want to give us? I mean, this is a huge topic, and I, you know, I'm not sure yes. how thorough we can get into this. Um, but maybe, maybe you could give us an idea of of the physical side of this. You know, what what are mm. what what are what are the physiological demands 
um, that these athletes are undergoing um, that's relevant to, you know, to the performance nutritionist and or yes. for those that are thinking, maybe I'll do some, I'm going to start maybe adding to the body of knowledge in this exciting area. You know, what are the, what are the areas that other allied researchers might, might be able to get involved in on this? So Sure. Yep, um, yep. Um, oh, before I say that, I, just, I can also mention that, um, uh, so this will encompass what I'm about to sort of say in terms of physiological characteristics. Alongside ultramarathon, you've got ultra-endurance sports, so they can classify, you know, rowing, cycling, half marathon and, hour, and Ironman, uh, sorry, half Ironman and Ironman are considered uh, ultra-endurance sports. You've got open water swimming, etc. So normally uh, the terminology is uh, anything, any exertional stress over four hours, you're starting to go into the ultra-endurance category. Yeah. Um, in terms of physiological demands, so based on some of the, the data we've collected on, on different types, um, on different uh, ultra marathon races, um, you it can, a multi stage ultra marathon on average is a, uh, and an average weight athlete, so 60 to 70 kilograms, is around 5,000 kilocalories per day um, energy requirements. And then when you go into the one stage, you know, 24 hours or above, each day, in terms of energy expenditure non stop, we've got values of between 12 to 17,000 kilocalories. And these are the races where people don't stop. They just keep going. Now, um, alongside all that, so with exercise stress, the more you move, the more you're going to have overall damage. So damage to muscle creating, you know, issues of retinomyolysis, um, more issues in terms of hydration status, both intracellular and extracellular. And of course, the gut. The more prolonged you go for, overall, the more deterioration you're going to have along the epithelial line, so along the, the, the gut lining. Um, and uh, um, uh, on top of that, you've got the psychological issues and you've got the, circa and the circadian issues, mm. um, which, you know, all play a role in your stress hormone responses. And then of course, stress, stress hormone responses are just going to cause chaos all over the place. So long story short is the longer you go for, not necessarily that, the intensity, because you can't really go for, you know, ultra marathon with high intensity, but Overall, the longer you go for, the more physiological disturbance you have and the more nutritional support you need, all the way from uh, replenishing uh, what's been lost and what's been damaged, but also providing advice in terms of dietary um, changes but, um, and dietary uh, necessities and needs. Because your appetite's going to change along that. The, your, your likes and dislikes and, and, and um, taste uh, sensory receptors are going to change. So, yeah, there's a lot to think about, not just meet the guidelines and recommendations you've got the practical element to think about as well yeah <laughs> I, I mean again you know it 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 sort of raises the issue of you know not just physiological disturbance but the psychological disturbance yes, of this yes. process yeah. it's it's utterly crazy but you know however crazy it is there are loads of people doing this as i said and there are many aspects to this which we don't need to get into. You know, there's there's obviously many components to the training. You've already pointed out that, you know, the term ultra or ultra endurance actually covers many different events from single stage to multi-stage, many day, even multi-month yeah. events, which is just mind-boggling, really. Um, but there are, you know, there are a number of areas, I guess, that, probably stand out the most 
um, with regards to issues that occur that that would be more deserving of of some serious attention you know that maybe people are less knowledgeable about or or less skilled at or the body of knowledge is less less clear about if you were to if you were to look at some of those areas bearing in mind you know the the broad and ever growing category of performance nutrition um and its scope yep. for that what are the what are the main areas that stand out you think that have the have probably the greatest bang for their buck in terms of of where we can yep. have the greatest impact as as professional practitioners to our client yep. the the ultra yep. endurance nutcase um, in, in, um, Lauren, can I just ask, in keeping them safe or, and or improving their performance or, or, or focusing just on performance? Right, it's, so that's, it's, a good, <laughs> that's a good point. No, but I mean, that's a good point, is it? I, I, think, I think in reality, you know, the, 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 first, the first sort of, you know, the first thing on the job spec for a performance nutritionist is not looking after their performance. It's looking after their health, isn't it? Yes. So, yeah, yeah. So, so I guess, yeah, let's look at it. So let's break yep. this into a couple of stages then. So bearing in mind, first do no harm and all that. Um, yes. But, but the extreme stress that the yep. athletes undergo, you know, the, the, the inevitable thing then um, is going to be, things that impact their health so if we look at it from that perspective what, yep. what are the yep. what are the you know what are the health consequences in terms of yep. all this training and, and competition yes um yep, yep. and what can we do about that initially let's start with that one so i guess i'll, I'll list i'll list the main ones out yep. based on the sports medicine um reviews uh, of our feder of our foundation so first one is your gut health of course i have to say that one first mm. <laughs> um so you've got deteriorations and impairment in um, gut structure and function. Then you've, uh, there's another issue in terms of immunodepression and, uh, and risk of illness and infection. Uh, during a period where those athletes are exposed to new foreign microorganisms um, and or you've got open, um, uh, open wounds. So, for example, you know, falling many times... Uh, runners just trip on logs. Remember, ultra marathon, most of it is done on trail and out in the bush where you got cuts, bruises, sprains, etc. A lot of, um, uh, so in an immune depressed state, then uh, they, they can become septic over time. I mean, I've got many stories I can tell marathon the samples of even one chap went into ITU after one race and was uh, IV antibiotics because of sepsis developing from the uh, skin just peeling off from his feet in day one and didn't do anything about it. Um, but uh, you've got that. Uh, red yeah, hang, hang on, Ricardo. I'm just going to can yep. I'm just going to cancel my uh, my entry for next year. But, so. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, it's all fine. You just take yeah. care of yourself. Yeah, yeah. Fine. Um, so retinomyolysis is another issue in kidney yep. problems in, in ultra that's been raised. Um, another one of your general soft tissue injury, um, uh, especially from sports medical physiotherapists. Um, and then, of course, you've got your fluid, disturbances in fluid shifts all the way from severe dehydration through to hyponatremia. But hyponatremia is the biggest one which we, we see uh, more common in the, in the ultra scene. Mm. Um, so they're, they're the main sort of uh, clinical areas that need attention when you do these races. Um, do, do you want me to just give sort of 
some general advice or general discussion on each of these areas? Yeah, like, okay, let's reverse yep. this because I do want to spend some time on the gut. Um, yep. You know, for various reasons, I think that that's, that's particularly interesting. But also we, we should point out here that this isn't something that just happens on the day. As I mentioned, the, the, you know, the, the, the risk of all of this or the, 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 the sort of, the, you mentioned Neil Walsh, who I've, I've had on here before, um, he talks a lot about, you know, life stress and the cumulative yeah. impact yeah. of stress. And I can think of no better example than all of that training um, yeah. for these kinds of events. You know, I've, I've, I've worked with um, Ironman triathletes who, you know, have, have, have been working their, you know, to use technical terminology, they've been working their asses off, you know, for mm. months on end, extreme sacrifices, and they're sitting on their plane over to Kona with, a, you know, with flu, yeah. a cold, you know, yep. feeling yep. terrible. Exactly. And, and yep. uh, um, there's, a, you know, th there's, there's stuff that happened there. Um, yep. so, so maybe, yeah, maybe you could look at it from, from that perspective before we get onto the gut specifically. Yep, yep. Um, so, as I said before, the, the more duration, the more intensity of exercise, everything just got, starts to get disturbed. So, um, the idea would be to do an appropriate training program um, and, you know, and uh, assess the nutritional um, values that are needed in those training programs to accompany. Um, one big issue that we're getting now in the ultra scene is people focusing on these, you know, low carb, high fat diets, mm. uh, more coming from social media and certain groups, you know, pumping out the promotion of this diet. But in reality, there's no evidence to suggest that. And they're the ones that are going to cause a problem for training adaptations and actually cause a lot of, uh, you know, uh, yeah, maladaptation in training and may cause problems of the athlete going into competition. Um, so if we, with the training per se, when we look at, um, um, the volumes of training that ultra marathons do, it's not that dissimilar to marathon running. So the problem with ultra marathon is that you got, as you said, you've got a lot of people doing, they're more recreational doing these small amounts of, and then suddenly a week on the weekend, they go and run the hundred kilometers. It's not necessarily during training. They're doing a hundred kilometers. Mm. So, um, it is important to try and meet your nutritional needs for your training volume. But a lot of people and, a lot of problems we're seeing is actually on race day uh, in this particular sport because they're just not trained to do it and then just go out and do it. Cause of course, how, how are you supposed to train for 230 kilometers? If you, you can't really train for 200 kilometers on a daily basis. So it's sm small and sweet over the week to try and do enough distance just, just to finish the competition, knowing that you're going to suffer like hell during that competition. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. Yeah, so the the I guess there's there's several points there, isn't it? Isn't there? It, it obviously prior preparation prevents poor performance, as the saying goes. Yep. But in reality, for some people, that just isn't possible. And the reality, it's not, therefore, yeah, it's not is, possible. is 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 no amount of nutritional preparation can, you know, prepare you to handle the sheer extreme physical stress on that one day a, a week. You know. Um, marathon session that you do literally um, yep. and I guess that reminds us of course that there is only so much that we can achieve through nutrition um, but 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 there is maybe some sidelines there where I'm thinking you know of the ultra endurance athletes that, that mm. have presented themselves um, 
to me, you know, with all these strategies and, you know, they've like the ones that where they're involving cycling, for example, you know, they've got the yep. latest equipment, um, but yep. they, you know, that, that weighs one gram less than the 10,000 pound <laughs> bike they had the year before, but they're carrying yep. a few extra pounds, you know, yeah. Uh, in terms of, of body mass, not just fat mass. Uh, some of them have got maybe an excess amount of muscle because they're still hitting yep. the gym and, you know, m- maybe from, because trying to keep this more from the nutritional perspective, yep. Uh, yep. Not just a competition intervention, but also from a preparation, because it's all about preparation, really, yep. isn't it? Yeah. What, what you know? What would you say are the main areas of interest then in that regard that that are likely to result in you being best prepared or and or minimizing the risk of problems on yep. competition yep. day um, for for those elite but recreational athletes in particular? Yeah. Yeah. So that that question is very difficult to answer because everyone's so different. So what we do mm. is we get the athlete. Imagine we got you know one ultra endurance athlete about to do you know a hundred kilometer. For example, we've got some athletes that come and done on the Australian team to do the twenty four hour world championships. We get them into the lab, and we do all your anthropometry. We look at their resting metabolic rates. Um, but more importantly, we look at what is their uh, uh, fuel kinetics during exercise in the state of um, where they're predominantly going to be racing at, which is in a glycogen stress or glycogen depleted state. So we would get them to go and run six hours on a track, then come into the lab and then do you know, a two-hour breath-by-breath oxidation assessment. And at the same time, during that whole time, would be feeding a high tolerance of carbohydrates, so 90 grams of carbohydrate, two to one glucose fructose, to see what their tolerance is. Mm. And then um, from there, we'll get information on intake, absorption, or uh, if we want to do gastrointestinal trafficking or transit, we can as well. But we'll be doing intake, trafficking, absorption, glucose availability, and then muscle carbon fat oxidation rates. That will get, for that individual, they'll give us information of uh, what they can tolerate and what they're using. And then from there, we would prescribe, okay, for your race day, you know, this is, this is ideally what you're going to have. But at the same time, in terms of preparation, that's their, their race strategy. But for the, for, in order to train, you need to know your race strategy first. Because when we advise on training, we always train about 120% of what they're going to have. So Imagine this athlete in a glycogen depleted state, they're only oxidizing 60 grams per hour, total carbohydrate. So there's no point giving more because the total carbohydrate at that six hour mark is example, you know, 60 grams. Mm. Um, so we would train them at 80 grams and we'd train them uh, not on fluids, on gels and foods. So they're a texture which is heavier or higher than what they're going to be racing. So if they're going to race with gels, we test them food. If we're going to, if they're going to race with foods as ultras do, because it's really just not tolerable, just having fluids and gels the whole time, they will end up being nauseous and vomiting simply because of the rep of, um, uh, of um, taste fatigue, not necessarily that they t- don't tolerate it, just taste fatigue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, that will be the training of nutrition while they're doing their long runs. And then when they get to the race, they'll just bring it back down to the normal 60 grams. So you're, you're not just training your body. You're also training your fluid requirement, your, your tolerance to fluid, increasing fluid requirements if they need it. You're, t- you're training the, um, the, the, the whole gastrointestinal tract and, 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 and 
uh, blood works to take up that nutrition and use it in the muscle. So that is a lot of, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, sorry. That I, I, so I'm loving this. So the, 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 this is, I think important is, and there's a number of points I think that stand out here is that, you know, that there's a propensity, you know, in sports science by virtue of it being such a, a research led field to yep. have so much generalized information out there. And of course, yep. there's a hell of a lot more data on, say, marathon runners than there is on ultra marathon. Yep. Runners. Oh, absolutely. And more, uh, and more on cyclists than runners as well. Yeah. And there's a big difference. Not to mention something I point out a lot as well is that an awful lot of people that end up doing these studies aren't exactly elite athletes um, as it relates to the people that we're now talking about who, who we're actually looking to help. So this brings me back to this, you know, this idea of, you know, what, what is the evidence we're using to inform our practice and is it relevant? Um, yeah. And that's an interesting question. And you've written about this in, your, in that paper I've referred to is that one issue is that, is that we're seeing ultra-endurance athletes following prescriptive advice from the yes. literature based on yes. marathon runners. And, and I, in my clinic, I... I I have a metabolic cart and I do fat max tests and metabolic flexibility assessments yep. and so on. And it's quite clear to me that those athletes are not consuming or, or they're not oxidizing the same amount of that substrate as a marathon runner. And of course, an elite yes. marathon runner <laughs> is, um, is, is running seriously fast compared to yes. uh, an ultra. Do you of want course. to just, just, you know, maybe open that mm. up a little bit more? Cause I think that's, a yeah, really absolutely. Yeah. Mm. So, um, and I wouldn't say it's the, the recommendations aren't based on marathon runners. It's actually based on the cycling groups of Asuka's work. And okay. then they've just been translated for exercise over three hours. That was just yeah. straight. And then, yeah, every practitioner, every athlete's following that. And then they're vomiting up because 90 grams is not tolerable. Yeah. <laughs> and also, the longer you go for, as I said, you're going to start to use different textures of foods. And those recommendations haven't tested, you know, purees, gels, or even solid foods. It's all just been liquids. Yeah, so, well, not, yeah, not to mention also, like in events like MDS, you know, you've got people like chopping the handles off their toothbrushes to exactly. save weights or cutting off the, uh, the plastic bits of their shoelaces because yes. it's all perceived like cutting their hair. People even cut their hair uh, yep. to lose weight. And yet they're carrying food that's greater in quantity than in reality they'll actually need. Yes. And these are things we must be aware of as practitioners. Yeah. Well, the, the guidelines and recommendations clearly state from example, ACSM, Thomas et al, 2016, uh, 90 grams uh, per hour, two to one, uh, you know, glucose or fructose maltodextrin uh, mix um, for any exercise over three hours. Now, exercise over three hours, you're starting going into the ultra scene. All the studies to recommend that haven't done three hours. They've all been done in an hour, an hour and a half or two hours. Mm. Um, and... When we've tested every single athlete, every athlete, you know, 100% of, of athletes when we did the gut training study, they, they were, on 90 grams, they reported a gastrointestinal symptom. Um, and 64 of them were malabsorbing the, um, uh, that, that concentration. Um, when in that particular study, when we actually looked at what was the total, this is the total oxidation rates at the end of the three hours where we get a crossover of fat oxidation and, and carbs, fats goes up, carbs goes down, even though blood sugar levels up around this, you know, six, seven millimolar, um, the average, uh, 
oxidation rates was one gram per kilogram body mass for males and 0.8 grams per kilogram uh, for females. Um, and so when we apply that uh, as a general recommendation, it is a lot more tolerable. So we're getting a lot less symptoms, uh, upper GI symptoms like bloating, belching, uh, urge to vomit and vomiting um, due to uh, too much uh, or too much fluid or foods and fluids in the stomach. So increase in intragastric pressures. Um, so going back to the example I gave in order, what we do to, pre we don't prescribe 90 grams an hour. As I said, we, we simulate, try and simulate the, the race event and the intensity of exercise of that athlete. We look at that total oxidation rate at the end, at that point of muscle glycogen stress or depletion. And then that gives us our number for that particular athlete. And that, that's the upper level. So we'll never provide any, G or, uh, any uh, carb rates above that level because we know 100% of the time they're going to get upper GI symptoms because of uh, uh, too much going into the stomach. Um, so the, the best advice I could give is you, you need to get your athletes into your lab, get them on the metabolic cart, um, uh, um, try and do a glycogen depletion protocol while you're feeding them a high level. So you, during the challenge, you would feed them 90 grams or even hundred grams. You want to over challenge the GI tract and get it into the blood and get it pumping into the muscle at the time, at the point where you're doing your, 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 your main, um, uh, gas analysis. And then with that value, then you've, at least you've got something more personalized to go with than, than using these standard recommendations. So the advice I give is you, Is working with elite Olympic teams. I'm not going to mention who they are. They don't use these recommendations because they know it causes problems to their athletes. Yeah. So the question is, why are they there? Why are they there? Yeah. Why hasn't someone picked it up and changed it? Yeah, well, that's always a good question, isn't it? I mean, the, 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 uh, I constantly bring up this, this comment of you can, but should you? Um, and I don't think people question enough, you know, why they're doing what they're doing. Um, and most importantly yeah. is they tend to just suddenly, you know, they'll try this literally on competition day, particularly the recreational athletes. Yes. Um, oh, they tend yeah. to leave their, their race nutrition to the last minute and then they try all this new stuff on the day and then they wonder why problems start to occur. Uh, so oh guess, dear. Yeah. Yeah. So a big take home That's obviously big no is, <laughs> is, is practice this one way or the other. You may or may not have access to, you mm. know, metabolic car, sports science lab, you know, you and yep. I have that. We're lucky. Not everyone does, obviously, that's listening to that. But you still can mm. practice these yep. these strategies and interventions. Yep. So, so contextualization. Oh, an easy way. Yeah, go on. Sorry, Lauren. I was just going to say. Mm. I was just going to say an easy way that you can do it is during a long training session with your athletes. You know, start with ninety grams. See what their symptom is using a, a validated symptom tool. So, L the Gaskell et al. Uh, 2019 International Journal of Sports Nutrition Exercise Metabolism. There's, it should be coming out soon. It's been in press for about six months, but in there, there's a validated uh, visual analog scale of gastrointestinal symptoms that you do in real time with your athlete on the track. Yep. Start with 90 grams, see what the symptoms are. If it's too high, so anything over five is too high, go to 80, bring it down until they're comfortable. And then when they're at that comfortable zone, then, you know, if, if the comfortable zone is 60 grams, then during training, you train at 80 for at least two weeks, three weeks before a major competition. Then when you get to competition, ensure they're competing at 60 
So always bring it down for competition. Train high and bring it down. And we've noticed that. That's, I mean, many of the people we worked with, some of their symptoms completely, you know, disappeared going into competition where before they were pulling out of the race because of just vomiting and not being able to tolerate their food intake. Yeah. This is something can easily be done on the side of a track. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you've mentioned something that <laughs> we really do need to spend some time on here because I can see we could, th- this could be an ultra podcast if we're not careful. <laughs> Uh, oh no! So I, I, I'm going to keep adding stuff for people to read, um, uh, and also to point out, I've, I'm, I've actually helped co-author a, a paper on single stage uh, ultra endurance for you know nutrition, which, which is coming out soon. So that will mm-hmm. hopefully add to this conversation. Yep, yep. But, but basically, um, you, you use the word tolerate, and I think this is a particularly interesting topic because there's several sides to this issue. Um, something I learned a great deal about on your course that, that, that you offer, which is again, why I'm, I'm plugging it because it really is valuable information. Um, what, so what, what's going on with this situation? Why are people vomiting or why is it coming out the other end? Um, yep. you know, what, 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 is it, the, no pun intended here, but is it the chicken or is it the egg? <laughs> you know, what's going on? Is it the <laughs> food? <laughs> help us understand what's going on here. Cause I think yep. this is a big area for performance nutritionists to help, help support. Yep. Well, it's both the chicken and the egg together. So <laughs> to, I guess to start with is each individual person has a, um, an individual ability to tolerate intragastric pressure. So each person can have a tolerance to how much they can hold in the stomach and how much they can empty into the intestine. Once that gets in the intestine, each individual person has the ability to, to you know, traffic that the, the, the bolus or traffic the, that food and fluid, or what we call the trium along the GI tract. And then along the GI tract, each individual person has different abilities to uptake those nutrients depending on how much transporters they have and also the, effective and the effectiveness and how, how, uh, how good those transporters work in getting into the blood. Once it's in the blood, there's another problem is we now know that different people have ability to take that the glucose into the muscle in different rates. So that's where you know, training adaptations come in. But you know, going back to the, the gut, that's one thing. So uh, I'll just, I'll just speak about that bit first. So that's the functional element. So that is uh, gastric emptying, trafficking, absorption, functional. Um, So if you take on too many, too many fluids, even water, if you take on too much water or foods um, above your ability to gastric emptying, then you're going to get issues. So Mm -hmm. it's all just going to build up and you're going to vomit it. If you take if you take on too much of, of more foods, so too much carbohydrates above your ability to absorb it, your, so your transporters, um, then you're going to malabsorb. And if you malabsorb those nutrients, they're going to travel all the way to the large intestine, where the bacteria is going to munch, munch them, create gases. But at the same time, along the intestine, the small intestine, just the increase in carb content along the lumen is going to push water into the into the, into the gut, into the lumen. Um, so you're going to have osmotic issues and you're going to have gas issues. Therefore, you're going to stimulate more lower GI issues. But another problem is that if you've got nutrients and waters and gases and distension uh, along the ends of the, so the terminal ileum, along the ileum and large intestine, that's going to feed back to the stomach. Just tell the stomach, hang on, I've got stuff down here. Please don't, don't bring any more in. 
So malabsorbing nutrients or having issues downstairs is also going to cause a decrease in gastric emptying. So, yeah. I, do you want me to go? Okay, yeah. I could just I mean, keep going on. It, and on. Well, it just reminds me of, uh, I saw a <laughs> lecture on a topic about this and they showed us that what is probably famous photo of that, um, that athlete who's, uh, uh, running um, in both directions, if you know what I mean. Um, yeah, easily yep. Googleable, and you know, it, it it it's not just that it's going to be unpleasant. It's going to profoundly impact um, you know your time uh, in your event. Um, so, it's, what I'm saying here is this is not just a consideration for how you feel. Um, but this this has a pretty major impact um, on performance. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we have clear data from our labs in the gut training study and also the Spain that the, the, the symptoms uh, induced a reduction in, you know, a distance test performance. Mm. But if you can reduce the symptoms, you got an improvement in performance. So, absolutely. <laughs> so that, so that, so this, is, this is a good point, actually. So it's not just having you know, the, 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 the sort of the reaction, if you like, you know, the vomiting, the diarrhea, um, but even just a perception of I'm a bit uncomfortable, um, that will translate to a reduction in performance as well. Absolutely. That, that's the main, so that's the main thing we found in our study. So not, no one vomited in our study. They had regurgitation into the mouth, but no, no projectile vomiting. Um, but just the sense of I'm not feeling. So it's, it's what in our scale, it's what we call severe and mild symptoms. So scale one to four is mild, meaning the exercise is predominating. That you're, ex you're thinking more about the exercise than the symptom, but the symptom's there. Five to nine is severe symptoms where you're thinking more about the symptom, the actual exercise bout. And that's what reduces the performance when the focus is on the symptom. I'm not feeling well versus the output of exercise. Yeah. And you can, you can muscle your way through a hundred meters, a thousand meters, even a 5k, possibly a 10k. But when it's days or an entire day, of no, running, yeah. that's a whole different matter, isn't it? Yeah. Yep. So yeah, absolutely. So, so just, <coughs> let's just get back into, into the gut. You know, you've presented a number yep. of situations. Um, <coughs> it, you know, what, what impact does exercise have on on the gut that might be relevant to the situation and therefore yeah what can we do about that um if anything yeah um, that would be a, a good a good one for this section yeah so two main things uh, when we start exercise that happens to the gut and these are natural these are just natural body's physiology responses uh because normally when we're in the old days when we were exercising it was more running away from danger or trying to attack something and you're not really sitting down and eating at that time. So everything gets shut down the gut. So first of all, blood flows goes to the muscles for working. So you've got less blood flow to the gut. So that creates an ischemic issue around the, around the intestine. Um, and then just the stress response of exercise. So your neuroendocrine activation shuts down the gut because the gut's controlled by the enteric nervous system. It's, you know, it's a, a nervous activity. Uh, if you increase your sympathetic, it's controlled by para, so it literally just switches it off. Um, from the integrity, so from the blood flow perspective, it's more about damage. It actually damages the cells and the lining, therefore the functionality of the, the gut is reduced. Whereas from the stress response, the shutdown of the parasympathetic, it's the actual function. So gastric emptying, peristalsis, 
um, and absorption all just get shut down. I mean, example that I can give is uh, the old sport nutrition research. This is new stuff coming from our lab. We haven't published that. It's just some of our current studies and what we've observed is we have clear evidence of uh, the longer you go for, and this is going into your ultramarathon, gastroparesis or paralytic ileus or subparalytic ileus, literally the shutdown of gut is inevitable. It is going to happen. We see it in every single athlete. Most of the other studies that looked at gastric emptying and exercise intensity, they've done like 15 minutes to 30 minutes to an hour. It's like, yeah, nothing's going to happen in that time. Mm. But when you start to go for six hours, yes, we, we actually see just in three hours running in the lab, we have you know, a handful of participants literally paralytically shut down. There's no trafficking of any um, lactulose solution test that we do uh, in the four hours after exercise. So literally it stays shut for up to four hours and then we have to, we have to let them go home and we still don't see a response. So um, it's uh, yeah. When you, when you think about the reason why I mentioned this is in the literature, going back to guidelines and recommendations, it's, and I've got this from reviewers. They state that, Low and moderate exercise intensity doesn't impact or gastric emptying. Uh, yes, it's right in yeah. 15 minutes and an hour. Go and do that for six hours. Let's see how you do. And that's what the current study is. We're going to try. We've got that data. We just need to get out and say, look, fine for an hour. But as soon as you go for um, longer, this is, this is what happens. And the data I can give right now is for every hour of exercise, so one hour, two hours versus three hours, it's about a, t- um, it's about a 30 minute, sorry, 10 minutes. There's a 30 minute delay. Uh, in terms of oral sequel transiton, that is the a test solution given orally. The time it takes to get to the a terminal ileum, so yeah. it's a thirty-minute delay per hour uh, per um per hour of exercise. Um, so that's yeah, that is quite shocking. So, so you're making it quite clear uh, to me. <laughs> you know, is that we really do need to be careful about translating one study you know, or a study into reality without bearing in mind the context in which, you know, those studies were performed, which is obviously something that happens all, yes. all the time. And, exactly, and the way yeah. that influences that body of knowledge is amazing. Like you say, the reviewers start referring to stuff without themselves considering the context of what you're talking about, which obviously means that we, we do need to start maybe looking at more, more applied you know studies um that are more you know that emulate the actual event which obviously yeah. is really difficult to do but. yes exactly yeah well that, that's it from a practitioner perspective we can use the research to sort of a, a general uh, guidance and a general overview of knowledge but at the end of the day each athlete's going to be different so you'll need to assess individually and apply the intervention as needed i mean that's the best approach because the example I give this gastro, gastroparesis paralytic, that's not in every person. It's just on a handful. So we're not going to do the same intervention of someone that's, you know, just finding it hard to tolerate 90 grams of carbs versus someone that's a complete shut off in the gut. The intervention yeah. and the prep for the race is going to be completely different. So, Ricardo, let's, let's just, uh, you know, again, on this theme of tolerance and gut issues and so on, you know, we talk about training from the perspective of physical training, uh, even psychological training, you know, just getting used to all this stuff. But what about gut training? You know, what can we do to yep. prepare the gut for all of this? Because, you know, one only has to yep. look at some of the emerging literature. Aska, you can do, 
has talked a lot about this in the past and on this podcast even. Um, what, what, yep. what do we need to know about the gut's ability to adapt to these things? Yeah. So it, it is adaptable. So stuff from Lambert's and, and our gut training product has clearly shown that not just uh, from food perspective, but water per se. So if you increase the volume of the stomach repetitively during exercise over time, it will start to adapt, not just in size, but uh, increase the, um, uh, the pylorus activity. So you just you get more gastric emptying. So that's, that goes back to what we were previously discussing is identifying what the upper tolerance of your athlete is and then training 120% above that tolerance and increasing the texture of that, to- of that food as well. And then when you get into the competition, bring it, bring it back down to the 100% mark. Um, and that's the, 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 the simplicity in terms of, um, of, of training, of, uh, gut training. So first of all, it's, uh, your gastric emptying increases at the same time, the more, the more carbohydrates you can get into in, t- in the intestine, it seems like there's, um, protein, uh, gene expression of proteins, which increase the, um, transporters in the gut. So sodium glucose transporter and glute five increase in concentration due to the presence of carb. So you can get more in. Um, and possibly there might be some also digestive um, adaptations, so more efficient digestive release, especially if those that are eating food, um, solid foods. So starch, like in ultra, uh, eating jam sandwiches or salted potatoes is quite common, but they're starchy products. So um, over time, you see people um, uh, reducing the malabsorption tolerance of, of these foods. So possibly there could be some digestive ad- adaptations. Um, I mean, I, I guess the best example I can give is our gut training paper in two, Costa Tell 2017, that two weeks of gut training on the same um, gel discs, the 90 grams, two to one glucose, fructose, um, 64% of participants were, pre- were presenting malabsorption of that, those, the, that solution. Then two weeks later, after training uh, with that solution for, um, uh, for two, two weeks consecutively, the malabsorption is completely blunted in the intervention group. So that, that, that will be more in terms of transport uptake, not necessarily emptying. Emptying mm. will be improvement in symptoms, but it clearly shows that there, uh, there was an increased uptake of, those, of that carbohydrate content in the intestine. So, that, you know, look, there's a, a ever-increasing cans <laughs> of worms being opened here. Um, uh, yes, so, there is. Uh, but <laughs> Sorry, just, but no, but that just that's that's why I love getting into these conversations because there is actually so much there. This is not simple stuff. Um, there's, no, there's, there's a lot of PhD studies to come, obviously, on this stuff. But the, the you know we've talked about some of these things in past podcasts. I've got a fair amount of uh, ultra endurance related podcasts coming up. That's how much there is to discuss. There's at least three or four podcasts coming. Um, but mm. I wanted to just, again, just because you really, really are the man to talk to when it comes to, to gut and ultra endurance, that we're not just talking about, presumably, we're not just talking about, you know, um, issues that occur on race day or during specific training events, um, it, you know, how the body interacts with, you know, fueling strategies and, and gels and so on. But, you know, I talk about this all the time, but athletes are also human beings and human beings live, you know, day to day, 24 hours a day, just like everyone else. And they, yeah. like all humans, have, have some issues. Um, some of them will have irritable bowel syndrome. Some people will have yeah. 
yep. some degree <laughs> of gut issue. Some people even have yep. some intolerance or, you know, um, or, or yep. celiac disease or, or whatever. Yep. What, you know, bearing yep. that in mind, and I realize this is a yep. separate podcast, really. Um, but yep. but what what should we be thinking about in that regard and and yep. you know what you know what, what what types of foods might be a problem and yep. what can we do about it yep yep so i i can't answer the question what types of food but the general yep. approach would be and what we use is if there's someone with a, a gastrointestinal inflammatory or functional uh, disease or disorder um that is outside training and that is dealt with and managed outside training in the clinical setting so yep. The, the standard lifestyle intervention to manage that condition is put in place first. And then once that's established, then we would do a what we, the, the standard gut assessment during exercise to see uh, if they have any further exacerbatory effects with the exercise. In most cases, they do. What we've seen is those that have functional or inflammatory issues do have uh, a lot more um, incidence and severity of symptoms during competition uh, to the point where we've had reports from certain gastroenterologists around the world that people with um, their patients with Crohn's disease that, you know, have done half marathon or marathons and then have been admitted to hospital due to, you know, yeah, the paralytic ileus. And one case did London marathon and was submitted to, um, uh, hospital and had to go on parental nutrition because it's the GI tract is shut down for um uh, for a week. So these wow. are just examples how Whole if week. there is already wow. established, yeah, exactly. Um, so this is an example of um if there is a underlying gut condition, including celiac, um there there is more predisposition of of during exercise uh, problems. Um, so that, that would be the, the take-home message. Treat the underlying condition first, outside training, and assess the, the, the severity of during. Um, in, in most cases, the underlying mechanism which causing the symptom is that linked to the, um, the actual uh, d um, disease mm. um, or, or disorder. So in, function, in irritable bowel syndrome, it could be hypersensitivity um, uh, 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 of, the, uh, of the bowel. And then... Uh, when they consume even uh, glucose, for example, um, that could create a malabsorption issue. So we do have evidence that just plain glucose is being malabsorbed in response to exercise. Again, get back, going back to the shutdown of the transporters. And if in that individual, if you do have malabsorption, just a simple glucose, that can uh, trigger um, the abdominal pain and issues because of the hypersensitivity. So that's just uh, some examples there. Um, Sorry, uh, Lauren, what was your second question? Well, uh, no, I was just, I, so the area I was sort of going to delve into briefly um, was, you know, inevitably one type of food um, that yep. ultra-endurance athletes are going to eat a lot of yep. is carbohydrates um, in one yep. form or another, and to a certain extent, protein, um, yep. particularly, you know, from dairy and so on. So, of course, there are gluten- mm -hmm components there are um you know proteins found in in dairy like uh you know casein and yes. lactose and so on so you know where i'm yep. going with this so that sort of raises yes. the yep. issue of the of yep. the relevance and impact of of yep. um fodmaps and the you yep. know the, the the introduction of a fodmap diet something that i i also did the monash yep. fodmap course um yes 
about yep, a year yep. ago and I, I, I have, uh, uh, I'm going to do a podcast all about FODMAPs and performance at, uh, at another time. But what are we talking about yep. briefly and, and, and why is this relevant? Yep. Okay. Oh, that's very topical at the moment and I'm, I'm just submitting the revisions to our FODMAP paper right now, like really? today as we speak. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I can summarize our findings in that paper so um yeah that 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 is it that is that is an issue and it's it's, it's a, not an issue but it's an interesting discussion um so we got uh, highly fermentable carbohydrates they're in just standard foods that we normally eat uh beans wheat uh, garlic onions um uh mushrooms a whole, uh, mangoes pineapples apples pears you know a whole heap of different foods have uh these highly fermentable carbohydrates now Highly fermentable means the bacteria in the low intestine love them. Uh, and if they love them, they're going to be producing a, a lot of gases associated with them. Um, and at the same time, uh, these uh, have, a more, have a tendency to be more malabsorbed, either uh, from a digestive perspective, e.g. lactose breaking the, um, the lactose into its two forms for absorption, or fructose because there's not that... Um, the, the transporters along the intestine isn't as much as for glucose. Um, so they're more highly, highly uh, malabsorbable compared to uh, your, your not low FODMAP sources. Um, so yeah, when they reach the large intestine, you've got water, you've got uh, gases. And of course you've got, um, if you've got hypersensitive, it's going to cause you problems. Now, one thing I need to mention is, and the people forget this because, you know, they think low FODMAP, oh yeah, low FODMAP, great, et cetera. But high FODMAP foods, highly fermentable um, uh, carbohydrates uh, feeds their commensal bacteria. So uh, along your GI tract, you do have commensal and pathogenic-based bacteria. And the commensal bacteria is the one that produces short-chain fatty acids. Short-chain fatty acids, you've got butyrate, acetate, and propionate, and they have um, both functional, gastrointestinal functional strengthening properties and also metabolical properties in the, in the bloodstream. Um, uh, so they're a good thing. So in other words, high FODMAP foods pr- feeding this commensal bacteria producing short chain fat, it's good. Um, to, but as you can see, it's going to cause symptoms as well, especially those that have hypersensitivity. Um, now, in terms of its response to exercise, you got high, you got low. <coughs> now, um, do you want me to go into the research or forget that? I'll just go straight uh, well, to the sort of concept. I mean, like I say, that can be another topic. In fact, uh, yep. this new paper of yours is something we can get into. I think it's particularly interesting. But actually, no, you just made a good point. And I referred to this earlier of just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do it, or at least you shouldn't be yes. doing it without thinking about what the the consequences of this are um, because there is a, yep. that, you know, and this will lead into the, into the next thing I wanted to get into. Cause as I said, this isn't an ultra podcast um, in terms of length, obviously. So, but yeah, but, yep. but, yep. but it's very <laughs> black and white, you know, people, they either, you know, it's either, it's, it's, it's either, you know, well, it's either going to be low FODMAP or high FODMAP or, or two segues yeah. into it's either high carb or low carb. So, if we, yeah, if we now yep. switch direction slightly and bring this back to something that is also highly topical um, and is be- gaining a great deal of interest in the ultra uh, fraternity in, in that environment is, is the whole idea of, of going low carb 
um, yep. becoming fat adapted, keto. I've explored this with loads of yep. people, including Trent Stanning yes. and Asker. Yes. And, and even, <laughs> even with uh, Mike Gleason, uh, he was going on about everyone's forgetting about <laughs> the impact of of uh, going low carb and what that has on the immune system and Glenn Davison as well. Yeah. And, and, you know, but yep. if you could just, from your perspective, from ultra endurance and, and mm. where relevant the, the gut and nutrition and so on, you know, wh- where are we at yep. with, with going low carb and or fat adaptation and, and keto and, and, yep. and because we mentioned what are the consequences as well? Um, you know, yep. you can, but should you, um, you know, I, I know there's yep. a lot there, but maybe you can have a little run with that. Yeah. Yeah. I just put, I would just bring out some key points. So first of all, when you do ultra marathon, it's just not on a flat surface going at 50, 55% of your maximal effort. You've got climbs, you've got descent, you've got obstacles and all that requires muscle power. And for muscle power, you need a rapid energy source. That's the first thing. Mm-hmm. The second thing is, to train for an ultra marathon, you're, you'll be going out, you know, for two, three, four, five, six hour runs. Glycogen gets depleted, you know, two to three hours. So if you're going for a six hour run, um, you're, you're going to be uh, for three hours in a glycogen depleted start using fat anyway. So just the natural part of training already pushes the fat oxidation in that zone. Um, if you go on these diets, so ketogenic diet or low carb, high, um, high fat, um, is more than enough evidence, more than enough evidence. Even in our lab, we see it that yes, you burn more fat, but your performance does not go up. Okay. You, you, you lose your speed. So you, you lose your ability to do glycolysis. So you're fine on a flat surface 55, but what about if you get to a hill? What about if you've got to go, you've got to go, you've got to run downhill, get over obstacle. You, you, you just won't have the ability in order to do that quickly. Yeah. Um, uh, just to give you an example, uh, in our lab, ultra marathon runners, you just eating a normal diet. Um, and we get them on there for three to four hours at the end of the four hours going at 55, 65% VO2 max, they're burning 1.2 to 1.8 grams per, per um, grams of fat, um, uh, a, a per minute. Um, and these are the values where the fat oxidation adaptation say, you know, enhances. So we're getting athletes that don't even do these diets just because of their training load are hitting those levels. Um, so I, I, I don't really, um, I don't understand the, some of the data coming out of these studies and some of the claims they're giving um, uh, uh, based on the athletes we're working with. Um, and another point from the gut, do you want me to go? Please do. Yeah. Uh, I'll give you an example. Yep. yep. Now this is very important and this is what everyone's forgotten. And what they've forgotten was, is that in order for fats to be absorbed at the, from the lumen across epithelial lining into circulation, it goes into the, um, uh, lymph tissue. Um, and in order to do that, it, it, it stimulates the, uh, the, the, um, the tight junctions. And with simulating the tight junctions, as fat is absorbed into circulation, it also pushes endotoxin, especially lipopolysaccharide, into circulation. Um, mm. So the more fat you have in your diets, the more endotoxin you're going to have. Now, we've got some really interesting data uh, coming from a study. I can't really release at the moment because it's just currently being all analyzed that clearly sh- shows something is happening. I can't really clearly tell you what it is. I can't really um, sort of disclose it, 
But just think about the mechanisms of how it works. So if you're consuming fat and fat as it absorbs is translating bacteria to circulation, just think about what that's going to happen. And that's a big issue in terms of ultra endurance sports, especially in the heat, because heat stroke and, 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 and mortality and more, um, uh, fatal outcomes due to sepsis uh, heat stroke uh, is an issue, an issue that we, we need to manage. And it, if we look at that theory, actually some of these diets may be uh, prompting or exacerbating uh, that particular issue because just that, that, that's just how fat absorption works. Uh, and people completely forgot it. They just focused on flu, um, flu, um, uh, uh, food and energy kinetics and completely forgotten uh, other systems around the body. That, brilliant. And I think, I mean, we probably should draw this to a close here on that point because as I, you know, there's clearly a lot we can talk about. I'd love to get you back on and yes. explore some of these other areas. But, you know, since I, I, I try and do a sort of a science to practice sort of you know journey with these conversations and bring it back to you know what evidence we're using to inform our practice and not just be evidence-based because i think we're you know there's a danger of not uh, not you know not determining how relevant that evidence is so being sort of robotic about putting science into practice without considering all those contexts and all the nuances and so on, I think is, is well evidenced by mm -hmm. what you just said. And with that in mind, and as someone who does a lot of, of excellent research that is, that is being used to inform practice, what, what are your sort of closing thoughts about that, about what you personally, you know, feel is, you know, needs to be done? Where, where do the directions of research need to go in order to be practical to athletes you know, in the field, actually doing this stuff, um, you know, yeah. what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's, it's, similar to, <clears throat> it's similar to what you just said in terms of evidence-based practice. We can use uh, the standard research or the general research to guide our knowledge and approach. But at the end of the day, as practitioners, everyone's different. Practitioners need to get into a system in order to assess their athletes on an individual basis. So uh, do an assessment protocol based on um, what are the main uh, support um, uh, applications you want for that and then use that information to inform the intervention individually to that athlete. It all goes down to personalized intervention, personalized assessment and personalized intervention. Yeah. Um, we can use research is all good and, and it informs us and improves scientific knowledge base. But at the end of the day, if you're working one-to-one -one with an athlete, it has to be tailored you. You can't really just apply, you know, black and white blanket recommendations for your athlete um, from the gut perspective. We never do because it's so difficult because it's all, everyone's so different. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a tool in the toolbox. That's the way I like to describe it. Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, it, yes, exactly. And you need to, you need to understand not only how to use those tools, but when not to use those tools. And um, yes, um, you know, that's the sort of the strengths and, you know, limitations sort of conversation, isn't it? Um, um, so exactly. look, exactly. Yep. Yep. Um, look, th Ricardo, thank you. I know you're a busy man. You need to go ahead and submit that paper, obviously. Uh, yep. <laughs> really appreciate you, you know, having your time. I've wanted to get you on here for ages and, um, I'm definitely, we'll definitely have you back. I, this is an area that I'm going to be doing quite a few podcasts on. I think it's particularly exciting area, um, to delve into in terms of science to practice. Um, if people want to follow you and your work, I'll link to everything in, in, on my website, but basically, um, yep. 
is it you know Twitter websites ResearchGate? What where are the areas that that, that you want to? Oh, probably the the easiest one is Facebook. So Facebook Monash University a Nutrition and Exercise Clinic. Okay. So everything we do, we put on there, like every paper we've published, we put on there. Any sort of one-to-one -one interventions we, we've done, we put on there. So all our um, updated stuff, so that's probably the easiest. Brilliant. Yeah. And like and I yeah, said, we got some. Sorry, go on. Yeah. Go, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was going to no, say. No, I was just going to say. I'm talking <laughs> over you. What am I doing? Go. Carry on. <laughs> go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I'll link to all of this stuff. And anyway, and uh, I just wanted to say that, um, you know, I said it before, I highly recommend that, that course you do for those that, that are looking. Uh, the two-week training course, I thought, was invaluable to myself. Yes. So definitely. No, thank you. Yep, yeah. Um, yeah. And, you're very and it sums up everything we've pretty much discussed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, it, it's excellent. Um, uh, and like a lot of things they do at Monash, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of a leaning edge there. Um, so thank you very much, Ricardo. Um, no, no, my pleasure. Thank you. I, uh, you know, for those of you that are interested in, um, in what we've discussed today, like I said, go back to our, to our uh, website. Um, I now have a, a, a specific uh, website for this podcast, which is wedoscience.com. Um, but it is, of course, a podcast of the Guru Performance Institute where you can learn more about not just this podcast, but everything that we do, our own training and education programs in applied performance nutrition. You can learn all about that at guruperformance.com. I, of course, am Laura Brannock and look forward to bringing another episode back to you all very soon. Take care.